Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for the 22nd episode of the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we jump into today's interview, I want to remind you that we are offering free 30-minute consulting calls to anyone interested in moving abroad once the pandemic situation is settled. It's never too soon to start planning for your next big life change. Whether you're looking to make your first move abroad, transition to life as a digital nomad, or just want someone to talk to about your travel and moving dreams, we are ready to help you think about the next steps in your journey abroad. Send us a message at expatempire.com and let us know what personal adventures you are thinking about embarking on in 2021. With that said, today we will be hearing from Amy Jasnicki. Originally from Canada, Amy has moved to Vietnam, China, and Germany throughout her career in English teaching and learning experience design. She has had a great journey around the world and back home to Canada again, so stay tuned for some awesome insights and advice for getting your start working abroad. Without further ado, let's start the conversation. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. Hi, David. It's really good to be here. Awesome. Well, if you could just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're originally from, where around the world you've lived so far, and where you are right now, that would be a great place for us to start. Okay. So I have a pretty extensive background, I guess you can say. When I was living the expat life, I was kind of jumping from place to place. I didn't really have a goal of staying in one particular country for too long. Mm-hmm. So I'm originally from Toronto. Uh, I spent pretty much most of my life in and around the city. And after finishing university and working for a few years, that's when I moved to Vietnam. So that was my first country that I was an expat in. I came back home briefly for a couple of months, applied for a job in China, and then relocated there. And I was living in Southern China. So it was a lot warmer there than what I was used to in Canada. Mm. And ultimately, I ended up also going to Germany and ultimately had to come back because of the pandemic. But I did get to spend a fair amount of time in the country. So it was a good experience. Okay, amazing. Thanks for that overview. And indeed, you've lived in a lot of different places. I'd love to start with just hearing about what you were doing in your, well, I guess in your studies and then ultimately in your the beginnings of your career before you decided to move to Vietnam and just set the stage for your travels before that point. Absolutely. So before I went to Vietnam, I was working in the public sector. So I was working largely in public policy. That's what I got my master's degree in back in Mm -hmm. 2014. And so I worked in that for a couple of years, mostly contract positions, which is very normal (laughs) in Mm. Toronto and the surrounding area. So there wasn't a whole lot of security. And to be honest, there was a lot of anxiety, not just for me, but a lot of my friends who were also coming out of graduate school in different fields, because that seemed to be the norm. So it was Mm. very competitive and it was very tough to find something that you could actually stay in and grow professionally. It was like, instead, you were just bouncing from job to job all the time. So I got a bit fed up with that. And I also wanted not just some security, but some real growth in one place for a little while. So I thought, I really want to travel. I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. So I looked into becoming a teacher, which was a complete departure Mm. from what I was working in before. So I became certified to teach English. So I went to Vietnam and did that. I actually got the certification in the country. So I spent the first month more or less just studying and getting that done. Hmm. 
And the great thing about the program was they also helped you find local jobs. So if you wanted to work in the city, that's great. They could help you with that. If you wanted to leave and maybe go to a neighboring country like Cambodia or even somewhere else in Southeast Asia or even in Asia, I guess, you could do that. But a major draw of the program was that they help you with finding a job. Cool. Yeah. So that was what I did. And then I transitioned into more or less just working with adults and business students. So that was pretty much what I did in China. And once I got to Germany, I got more into e-learning. So that was when I actually started my new degree in educational technology. So now I work as a learning experience designer and I have my own business. But when I was still in Germany, I was still considered technically like a freelancer. So I was doing a mix of like face-to-face and online corporate training, but also doing some e-learning course development as well. So it's, it's been a really interesting progression, professionally speaking. Yeah, it sounds like you've had a packed time over the last few years, not only across different countries, but in your career as well. How did you find that initial opportunity to go to Vietnam and get your certification and work with this company to get that first job in Vietnam or across Asia, as you mentioned? Sure. So it was very challenging in the beginning Mm -hmm. because I had traveled before. I had been to East Asia before, but never a place like Vietnam, especially Ho Chi Minh City. It is a very chaotic city. Like they don't really have traffic lights and that kind of thing. Mm, So the traffic is just constantly flowing. And initially I didn't even know how to cross the street properly. (laughs) I felt, (laughs) I felt almost like I had regressed into being a child because it was Mm. all so new and so foreign in that sense. So in the first couple of months, it was really rough because I also had to find a place to live and secure a job and just get used to living there. So the first few months were really tough. But Mm. once I had more or less overcome those sets of challenges, then it started to become almost second nature to me at that point. So I was working out of a school. And then I also got a part-time gig actually designing courses and curricula for university and adult students. So I really got to kind of explore my creativity there too. So once Hmm. I found that kind of niche that I was happy in, then it was a lot easier to kind of adjust to the way of life. Yeah, I can imagine. How did you decide on Vietnam actually? If you could have gone, let's say anywhere in Southeast Asia or Asia generally, how did you decide Vietnam was the spot? Because I've been there I loved it. I really love the place. And it's always been in the back of my mind as a potential place to go in the future. Not or perhaps again for travel, of course, but perhaps for longer as well. So to me to hear that you decided to go there is great. But I can imagine it was just such a shock from going from, well, Toronto, going from where you're from mm-hmm. to into such a completely different environment. Yeah. So the draw for me with Vietnam was... I always thought that if I went to go teach for a year, let's say, that Mm -hmm. I would go somewhere like China or Japan or South Korea because they have some of the best packages too for expats. Mm -hmm. But because I was a first-time teacher, usually Southeast Asia, it's very easy to find work. Mm -hmm. So that was one draw. The other was that I had spent a lot of time kind of recreationally studying countries like that. But with Vietnam... I didn't know anything about it aside from the war and the protests in that time. And so a bit of the the history, and I wanted to see how it is now. So Mm. that was a really kind of fascinating (laughs) experiential lesson for me because I really didn't know what to expect going in. Like I went in pretty blind and it was a great learning experience because 
how far they've come now is really impressive. I haven't been there since I was living there in 2016, but I think now they're even building a a subway system and everything, which they didn't have before. Everybody was just Mm -hmm. driving motorbikes and that kind of thing. So it's really interesting to see how they've progressed in different ways. Yeah. And on the notion of kind of having that perception or perspective, I guess you mostly came in without too much expectation, but that you had that cultural and historical context to it. What was the thing that surprised you most outside of, of course, the trouble of getting across the street, but maybe on a cultural level, (laughs) you know, and did you find yourself easily able to adopt the culture, integrate yourself into the society? You know, how did that sort of evolve over, I guess, the two years or so that you were there? The experience was very mixed in terms of integrating with the local culture. Mm -hmm. I did make some really great local friends, which really helped with the whole experience. But I think it was one of those places where when you spend enough time there, obviously every individual is different. But I found that for me, there were certain things I just couldn't reconcile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there were things that I could just accept as well. It's just different and that's okay. But then there were other things that maybe impacted my visa or impacted my job. And those were things that I couldn't really come to terms with as well. So after a while, I realized it wasn't really the place for me long term. But I think as a starting point, it was really good because it was a lot rougher than, you know, say going to South Korea where they give you an apartment and set you up with everything. And Vietnam didn't do that at all. Like (laughs) I had to figure all of that out. So I thought, okay, well, if I started with the rougher country first, then wherever I go from here is going to be much easier to adapt to. So I'm really grateful that that was my first choice in hindsight. Wow. Yeah, I think it's very impressive to take the plunge, but so deeply that you go into the maybe the hardest spot to start out first, just so that you know that you can make it work no matter where you go. It reminds me of learning to drive in Los Angeles and, or in California. <laughs> and they'd say, if you can drive here, then you can drive anywhere. And I don't know if I'd be able to drive in Vietnam, but let's say no. inside the United States. <laughs> so yeah, props to you for taking the plunge on such a, an amazing adventure. How did you summon the courage for it? Or do you have any advice for others that would be considering going more off, let's say, the beaten path of Uh, Western Europe, which is also great, but um, the Vietnam and similar experiences that you can find in Southeast Asia are certainly going to be much more different, maybe culturally than used to and much more intense in terms of getting set up there. So I'd love just to hear your advice or thoughts for others on that. It's a great question. I would definitely say like everybody says on expat podcasts is really do your research. Mm -hmm. I know that there's only so much you can look into in advance, but really look into visas in particular and make sure that you're actually qualified for the visa. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if this happens so much in Vietnam, but there are other countries, especially in Asia, where you have to be really cautious about that because maybe an employer will tell you, oh, it's okay. Like you can just work temporarily until we get your actual visa. In some places that's illegal. So you have to be really cautious about situations like that. That's the first thing. If you want to go more off the beaten path, you know, say as a digital nomad, or you just want to go to a country that's a little more unorthodox. Although I think now Vietnam is considered a pretty good country for expats now, last I read. But at the time that I was there, it was a little lower on the list. So I think if you want to do something that's a little less popular or a little, just a little less common, I guess, 
I would also just think about what your personal motivations for doing it are. So are Mm -hmm. you doing it because you just really want a growth experience from it? Are there going to be good professional opportunities for you? Is there something about the local culture itself that really intrigues you or a mix of all of those things? I think once you have a context for that, then it makes a lot more sense and it becomes easier to justify your decision to go there rather than somewhere else. Yeah, I think it's fantastic advice and people should really ask themselves why first and make sure that the place that they pick and indeed doing the research that you discussed will align that country or countries will align with what they're looking for. And you can always adjust down the way, but taking the plunge in a more unorthodox country. Well, you can always adjust, but that might be a rude awakening if you haven't done your research. Mm -hmm. Where did you do most of your research? How did you get that confidence that indeed, like this, I need, I know what I need to do? Because as you said, you didn't have an easy landing, you had to figure it out yourself. So do you have any good tips or resources for finding that information to help people to make that decision? Wow. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I hate to give an answer like this, but it really does depend on which country you're going to. So Mm -hmm. Some countries are going to have more resources readily available, even online, than others will. So, for instance, when I think back to Vietnam compared with China, I found that it was much easier to find information or even people to directly talk to for Vietnam than it was for China. Okay. So when I was working in China, I did have to rely a lot on my employer to ensure that even when you're given, say, a one-year contract, I don't know if it's like this still, but at the time I was working there, even if you were given a one-year contract, you still had to renew your visa every six months. Mm. Why? I don't know. That's just the way they structured things. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to be dependent, of course, but in some sense, you kind of have to be uh, in countries like that where your employment or your visa is tied to that particular employer, right? Right. But for a country like Vietnam, or if you want to be more of a nomad, you just want to make sure that you're following all of the laws in terms of immigration and staying there for certain amounts of time. So I knew a lot of expats in Vietnam who did visa runs, and I used to do this too, where Mm -hmm. technically you're living there as a tourist, and technically it's not legal, but the authorities aren't going to crack down on that because Mm. they don't want to deal with people who don't speak Vietnamese. Right. Typically, they'll accept bribes and different Mm. things if they do catch you doing something. Uh, But for the most part, they just leave you alone. So if you want to, I think it was every three months, you can go across a border, say into Cambodia, and you just come right back in and you're like a tourist for another three months, right? Mm. But if you can look into more, I guess, quote unquote, legitimate visas, Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to worry about doing that every three months, that's what I ended up doing. So I actually found a website that was for Vietnamese visas, and it was all in English. Hmm. All of the consultants there were English speakers too. So I actually got to reach out to one who helped me get my business visa so that I was able to stay there for a full year and not have to worry about coming in and out. And you can get single entry, you can get multiple entry. So if you plan on traveling around, you can look at things like that. And I guess my point would be to ensure that as common sense as it sounds, like just make sure you understand the laws. Right. Because if you don't look into that in advance and you're just relying on an employer or relying on someone too much to tell you what's okay and what's not, you might find yourself in a compromised situation. So go into Facebook groups or watch YouTube videos, read blogs, do whatever you can and try to get a more holistic picture 
of what it's really like to live and work in that country. Sure. Yeah, great advice. And you do have to adapt for your situation and your goals in the country that you want to go to and where you're coming from, of course. But I think that's just good tips for things to look up before you make the move. Mm-hmm. And in your case, so had you been to Vietnam before or you really just went sight unseen? <laughs> it was completely unseen. <laughs> uh, how did you decide or get the courage, I should say? I guess I know how we know how you decided, but I've met some people who have made the move abroad without ever seeing the place. For me, it's hard to get my head around because I think what you can see on the internet is so different from maybe what is it's like on the ground. You never know. You always have to experience the culture firsthand, but a picture can look great on Instagram and not so rosy or mm-hmm. such a great filter when you're actually there. So how did you think about just really like taking the one-way flight to a country halfway across the world that you hadn't even stepped foot in before? <laughs> I mean, you've done something really impressive, so that's Thank why you. I keep asking. Yeah, well... I- Honestly, I think a lot of it, this is going to be very, very subjective, but I think that's just my personality type. I think I just spent so many years, especially when I was going through grad school and trying to get a different career off the ground that I was so preoccupied with security and like wanting to know what my path was going to be that I kind of forgot to just enjoy things. Mm. And I got to a point where I was fed up with that. And I just thought, you know what, just I don't want to say through caution to the wind and not, you know, research anything or consider anything in depth. But I also recognized just from traveling that obviously living somewhere is very different than just visiting. So the only way I'm really going to know for sure is if I just dive in and do it. And Mm -hmm. if I come across issues along the way, then just make sure I have emergency contacts, you know, like people back home that I can contact if I needed to, um, which thankfully didn't really come up much or try to get acclimated with locals as quickly as you can. And and that also includes people who are also foreigners too, that have just been there longer. So they'll Mm -hmm. be able to kind of give you heads up about certain things. With Vietnam in particular, I think enrolling in the program that I was in to become certified as a teacher was one of the smartest moves I could have made. Mm -hmm. Because if I just went there and then tried to find a job, just living out of a hostel for a while, that would have been a little rougher to do. Yeah. But because I was in this like course with like 20 other foreign people and a teacher who was a foreigner, all these different things, there was already a community there. So I could mm. already defer to other people or say like, you know, do you have any experience in this country or have you heard about what we're supposed to do in this situation or that situation? That did help out a lot. So if, if I didn't have that, it would have taken a lot longer to discover the same information. And you found that agency or that, well, essentially that course online before you made the move, right? Yeah. So they also provided accommodation. So that was another mm-hmm. major draw in addition to job support and that kind of thing was I wanted somewhere that I know I could stay for that first month and then just figure out, okay, once I get the job then I can move in somewhere else and figure it out from there. But I just needed to get there first. So I just looked at it more as a, a sequence of events and you cross that bridge when you get to it. Yeah. So that was your entryway. That was your foot in the door into the country, into life abroad for that matter. And yeah, gave you the certification to start teaching English. So could you talk a little bit about your experience as a teacher of, I guess, ESL and what type of students did you have? You know, what was the schedule like? What were your responsibilities? Just everything about that would be really helpful. Sure. Okay. So (laughs) 
With Vietnam, the first job that I had was at a primary school. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the biggest fan of kids. So that was that was kind of an odd it wasn't even really a choice. It was just where they placed me. So I wanted to maybe be in a high school or a college or university, but because I was a first-time teacher, they just tend to put you with kids most of the time. Mm-hmm. So I just took it for what it was. And there were aspects of it that I ended up kind of enjoying. You know, some of the kids, especially the really young ones, were very sweet. You know, they'd get Mm -hmm. very excited when they'd see me. And they'd tell like, teacher Amy, and like come running. And this. some of those memories were very sweet. But at the same time, like I said, it's just not my cup of tea. So after doing it for almost a year, I was really happy that I also found like a side gig doing instruction and even course design for Mm. some of the local university and adult students, which was a totally separate job. Um, And that was kind of what ignited my interest in education and L&D. So for me, teaching wasn't just like a way to finance my travels. It was ultimately like a career transition, which I didn't even realize at the time. I just thought, oh, I'm going to travel a bit. I'm going to just enjoy this year and see what happens. Well, like many others, I ended up getting kind of addicted to this life and I wanted to see where it could go. So when I came back from Vietnam and I was only in Canada for a couple months at that point, Mm. I ended up reaching out to a recruiter who happened to be a Canadian guy as well. And I said, you know, I'm really interested in maybe working in South Korea and I'd like to work with adult learners this time. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, well, Amy, the trouble is that market is kind of oversaturated. In South Korea, Mm. like anyone who's anyone is already doing the job there. So unless you want to teach kids, it's going to be a lot more competitive. But if you want, go to China. So Mm. I thought, huh, okay, I'll think about it. So I did. And it turns out his wife worked for the company that I ended up working for. So he directly referred me to that company. And within a week, I had two interviews and was given a job offer. (laughs) these things happen quickly don't they (laughs) yeah sometimes they really do yeah but i mean the processing the visa took an infinite amount of time so Mm -hmm. i mean i know times are very tenuous you know because at the time of recording this we're still in the midst of the pandemic and only now we're seeing vaccines come out which is very exciting but Mm -hmm. i don't know how many listeners might be interested in working in china I mean, the opportunities are very lucrative there and they're very Mm. secure as well, but it's mainland China. So there's a lot of censorship. There's a lot of, not towards you as a foreigner, but there is a lot of repression that you do see as kind of an outsider looking in. So Mm. there are those kind of cultural things you always have to factor in. And when I was working with adult students, I could kind of see that. So even in a lot of the students that, you know, had really great critical thinking skills and were very perceptive and could catch on really quickly, I could still tell that there were just things that they just didn't know because of the political climate that they had grown up in. So that's something that I also had to get used to as well, because there were a lot of things I couldn't openly discuss that under normal circumstances, would be just completely normal to discuss, right? Right. How did you find out what those things were? Did they tell you when you came in or what what was the process of? Okay. So it's very direct. (laughs) So my manager actually, so he was a local person and we were actually pretty close in age. I think he was only a few years older than me, Mm -hmm. but he sat me down and this is kind of the process, at least with this company. I don't know how the other 
language schools or just schools in general in China are. But when he sat me down, he explained to me, well, here there are three T's that you can't discuss. I said, Mm. what are those? And he said, Tibet, Taiwan, and Tiananmen Square. You can't discuss any of those. I said, well, what Mm. if a student brings it up? Which did happen (laughs) more than once. Oh, yes, yes. Tons of stories about that. But I said, well, what happens in that situation? He said, you have to diffuse it. You have to find Mm. a way to shut it down. So I had instances where it wasn't really about any of those three, but maybe they spoke about someone like Mel Zedong, for example, Mm. and they have very different opinions. So I had one student who thought, oh, he's this hero and he's great. And then someone else said, no, 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 he was responsible for so much disparity. And and I thought, whoa, whoa, okay. (laughs) How did this even come up? So there were a lot of situations like that, that I had to kind of contain or control Mm. in some sense. And Because in East Asia, teachers are seen as authority figures, even though I didn't Mm -hmm. really see myself that way because some of my students were older than me, that is the culture. So I had to kind of use that hierarchy a little bit to keep the subject matter lighter. So there were a lot of those little things that you learn being in that environment and how to control those situations. Did you find it easier to move a second time to a new country or were the problems just as difficult or numerous, maybe just slightly different than the first time? Or was it easier? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it was easier in the sense that in terms of the actual planning and financial management of relocation, it was a lot easier because Mm. I had been through it before. And I'll be honest, (laughs) when I first moved to Vietnam, I didn't go there with a lot of money. Like Mm -hmm. I had just enough to pay for the first month and maybe like second or third month basic expenses, but I couldn't really do much until I got my first paycheck. Mm -hmm. And because it was a major holiday at the time that I was supposed Mm -hmm. to start the job, (laughs) our payment was delayed. So I was like, oh God, what am I going to do? So things (laughs) like that you do (laughs) kind of learn. But thankfully with China, I went there like in April So thankfully, nothing was really going on at that time. But the challenge with China was the bureaucracy. So the visa process is very, very different than, say, Vietnam, where it's a lot more, I hate to say it like this, but relaxed, Mm -hmm. you know, but in China, they're very strict. So if you're caught working without a proper Z visa, you can be detained and deported, which did happen to a guy that I was training one day. And he was taken away by the authorities. So looking into those legalities and ensuring that you're really on the up and up is so, so, so important, especially in a country like that, because you don't want to be in a Chinese jail. No, probably not. Did you get support from this company that brought you over in that process? Or was that you kind of on your own figuring it out again? Yeah. So because it's one of those situations where the company is the one processing your visa, you don't really have a choice but to kind of be relying on them for that, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So what ended up happening was when I first arrived there, I was a tourist. So I didn't explain at the border that I had a job lined up. Mm -hmm. I just said, I'm here to visit. So you enter as a tourist and then they transition you into the work visa. But in that time, some companies or some schools will try to get you to work in this Uh, in-between period. So I caution anybody... Not just teaching any job. I caution anyone who wants to maybe work in China, don't let them tell you that's legal. 
I don't care what they say, that they have some kind of arrangement with the local authorities. Don't let them tell you that because that's not true. If you're caught, you will be detained and probably deported. So it's really, really important. And thankfully, I kind of put my foot down with my manager and I said, listen, I'm not starting until I have a proper visa in my hand. Well, that's great advice. And certainly if we can keep any of our listeners out of jail in China, (laughs) I think we've done a good service today. Yeah. (laughs) On that front, though, how long did it take for you to get the work visa in hand? How long did you have to keep putting your foot down to wait to start working? Oh, Lord. So the actual offer took, like I said, next to no time. Like I got the Mm -hmm. job offer within a week of starting the interview process, which was crazy fast. So I thought, okay, I'll probably start around March. So this was back in 2017. I applied for the job early in the year. I think it was January. I was given the offer. They said, okay, we're going to aim to have you here like mid-March, somewhere like that. So I thought, okay, great. And so I started getting my paperwork. I had to go to the consulate in downtown Toronto and process my paperwork and do all those things. But on the company's end, they still hadn't done a lot of things and they weren't really communicating Mm. with me. So it took nearly three and a half months for me just to get to China. And then when I got there, there was still another two or three weeks that I didn't have my visa. Okay. So there was a lot of waiting and a lot of back and forth, which was quite frustrating if I'm being perfectly honest. So when I finally got it, I was just relieved that I didn't have to worry about it again for another six months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that feeling of relief, I definitely understand. But then you, as with a lot of things, I think being abroad, it just resets the timer kind of like, okay, I'm good now. I got past that hurdle. But now six months or 12 months down the road, you got to get over the next hurdle, right? Yeah, yeah. And when I worked in Germany, I mean, it was also very bureaucratic, but for completely different reasons. Like they're very efficient there they definitely know what they're doing in terms of processing it, but it's just very time consuming. And if you don't have all the paperwork, including Mm -hmm. things that aren't even required, but are just nice to have, maybe the agent's not in a good mood that day and just decides, you know what, you don't get your visa. (laughs) It it really seems this way, or it is, I think we could say it is this way because I think most anyone who's gone through the process realizes that that stamp, you know, the approved or rejected stamp is really in the hand of the individual that's behind the table. And uh, that their feeling can be swayed by many things, including your ability to communicate in German, your paperwork, including stuff that are nice to have, and perhaps even if they've been on their lunch break yet or not. So it's a tough spot to be in, I know, for sure. It is, yeah. So when I was working in China, though, thankfully, once I got it, It was something that one of the, I forget which role it was, but someone in the office was primarily responsible for dealing with visas. Mm -hmm. So the first person we had there when I was working was great. Like she was really on top of things. She would let you know, like, okay, your deadline's coming up. So we have to start getting the paperwork ready for you. But if you're not so lucky and you're working with somebody who's not on top of things or Mm -hmm. doesn't know what they're doing, that's when I would give the advice that even though you really shouldn't have to do this, just keep track of dates, right? So if you know that you're going to have to renew in six months time or however much time it is, just keep it in your calendar or something and set a reminder at least like a month in advance so that if you do have to kind of be a little more self-reliant about it, 
then at least you're prepared instead of waiting on somebody else who maybe tells you too late and then puts you in a compromised position, right? Yes, yes, I totally agree. And I I think that's a good takeaway in general from Life Abroad is that hopefully you have people around you that can help you, whether you're paying for those people or they're coming from your company or whatever the situation is. But at the end of the day, you are still responsible for pushing your process forward and making sure that the government stays on track, that your HR stays on track, and that you're in, as you say, you don't want to get to a compromised position. So making sure that you're putting those reminders in, you're pushing people, you're making the calls if you have to, or making the emails to the person that needs to make the call or go see them in person. I think this is really, really good advice. (laughs) I've had many near misses myself, so I'm glad to hear somebody else give that advice as well. Yeah, definitely. You were in China. Which city were you in? You were in the southern part. Yeah, I was in Shenzhen. So Mm. I was in the kind of the major tech city of the country, which was really fascinating. It's also known as the SCZ or special economic zone. Mm. So it's like how Hong Kong is the special administrative zone. That's what Shenzhen is, but for the economic side of things. So there was an entire tech district there, Huachong Bay, which was a phenomenal place to visit. You know, you could see drones everywhere and oh, cool. all kinds of really sophisticated technology. But Shenzhen is a migrant city. So most mm. of the people who are living there are not from Shenzhen. They're from other parts of China. So you get this really kind of hot pot mix of people from all over the country. So you meet people with a lot of different life experiences in the country dispositions, priorities even. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting place to spend a full year in because there were a lot of differences even from person to person or class to class sometimes that it almost feels like you go to one room, you're in a different group (laughs) or like in a different part of China almost. (laughs) And then you go to another one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What do people speak there? Do they all kind of go to the there's no, I guess there's the Putonghua, but like the common tongue or whatnot. But maybe even then I've heard that that's, I'm not even sure if there yeah. is a common tongue of China in the sense that there's just so many dialects. So I can imagine a migrant city where people are coming from all over the place. You're just going to, I mean, I'm not sure how much you were able to kind of integrate that way, but I'm just curious how it is mm-hmm. to have people from all over China in a city like that. No, well, you actually hit the nail on the head because it is Putonghua. So the mm-hmm. standard Chinese, standard Mandarin is what's spoken in Shenzhen, despite the okay. fact that it's in Guangdong province, which is a Cantonese speaking province. And mm-hmm. it's for that exact reason, right? Because there are so many people with different dialects from other parts of China that they need some standardization. But while I was there, it was pretty easy too, to find tutors for foreigners because Even though it's not like a Shanghai or Beijing in terms of foreigner population, there were a lot of great tutors around to help out with Mandarin, which was great. My first tutor actually told me she worked with a lot of business groups. So I guess like Americans or Brits who come to China to work and very often they don't really need Mandarin for their jobs. But of course, it's valuable if you can learn some. Right. And of course, the companies were paying for this. So most of these people that she worked with, she said they didn't really take it seriously. Like they weren't really that committed to Mm. learning the language. So when she was working with me, she said, you know, I actually really like working with you because you're actually putting an effort forth, which is nice. And I actually see progress because you're actually doing the work. But she'll go to these, you know, some of these businesses and they were just, it was the same as it was six weeks ago. 
right? Yeah, yeah. So that it feels like a waste for her. Yeah. So did you spend just one year there or what was your expected timeline and how long did you end up staying there in full? Mm. So I was planning to stay in Shenzhen for minimum of a year. And then Mm -hmm. once the year came around, or even before that, I suppose, technically, I was interested in still living in China, but not Shenzhen. So Mm -hmm. I was a bit, I don't want to say disillusioned, because Shenzhen does have some really great aspects to it, but socially it was kind of rough. So I wanted to go somewhere a little more international. So I had my eye on Shanghai for a Mm -hmm. bit. So I ended up actually applying for a job there, going through the whole process of trying to transfer my visa to another employer. That was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by that, I mean, not uh, at all. <laughs> yeah, sounds like not so much fun, but it's really tied then to each visa is tied to the single employer. Is that right? Yeah, that's okay. exactly it. And again, that's the only legal way to do it is the mm-hmm. C visa, right? Wow. So when I finally got to Shanghai, it turned out that the employer didn't exactly know what they were doing in Mm. terms of processing the visa. So they kept asking me for documents I already gave them, changing the requirements for the photos and things like that. So I'm like, "Uh, do they know what they're doing? Hmm. I'm not so sure. So I was getting a bit disillusioned. And then they finally told me, oh, by the way, our deadline to submit this has passed. So we're going to need another four to six weeks. I'm sorry, what? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't sound good. No, it wasn't. So I think this particular company, or at least this branch of the company, because it is a larger company. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to suggest that the whole company is this way, but at least for this particular branch, their visa people didn't know what they were doing whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I got really frustrated and I actually told them, you know what, I'm just going to go home to Canada because I didn't know what else Mm -hmm. to do at Mm -hmm. that point. I spoke with my family. I spoke with my friends. I'm like, they said it's another four to six weeks. They're like, Amy, like, like yeah. you, you've been there already for like almost a month. What are they doing? <laughs> I don't know. So I finally told them this and um, their reaction wasn't great. They kind of turned it on me and said, well, we put all this work into it. How can you mm-hmm. leave? Meanwhile, I had to put in a lot of money and time to get my certificate notarized again because uh, Shanghai has a totally different process than Mm. other cities in the country, which cost me over $1,000 to do. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I lost a grand just from that. And then Mm. trying to find a place to live or living out of a hotel during that time. So I wasn't very keen on that. You know, someone telling me that like somehow I wasted their time. Yeah. I was like, no, (laughs) do you not see Mm. what you're doing? Like it was really disrespectful. So I didn't really care for that. So I, I finally just left and had enough. So when I came back to Canada, I ended up getting into freelancing. So I was getting into like e-learning and some online teaching and training. And I was really happy doing that. But I still wanted to go abroad again. So I Mm -hmm. had my sights set on Europe. And I thought, okay, I know getting into the EU is going to be a bit tough because I'm not an EU citizen. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'll find a way. Maybe I'll go to the Czech Republic or something. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate because I happened to find... Uh, I guess they're kind of a visa company. They're not actually affiliated with the government, but they can help you with your visa. Okay. And they mostly do freelancer and student visas. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I can be a freelancer in Germany. That's quite cool. Yeah. So I contacted them and they were the ones that kind of helped me through the process to get there and to also set up my visa appointment and to get all the paperwork processed. So that was really valuable. 
And I ended up in Germany for a time. So it's been kind of interesting to see just how starkly different all these countries have been in different respects, you know? Yeah, definitely. You've seen quite a few different places that are all meaningfully different from each other. But before diving into being in Germany, I'm curious what it was like between uh, Vietnam and China and between China and Germany to go back to Canada. And I'm not sure, it sounds like maybe you just spent a few months there, but was your plan always, even when you went back between Vietnam and China, to get abroad again? Or did you get did you go back thinking I'll stay here in Canada for a while and then you got the itch to be abroad? Just be great if you could talk about that a bit. For sure. So each experience was kind of different. So when I first came back from Vietnam, I knew for sure that I wanted to go somewhere else. Mm. I didn't want Vietnam to be my only experience living overseas. I felt like it was just beginning. That mentality was very different from when I came back from China, because initially, I'm just going to be perfectly honest here, I was very angry. So Mm. when I came back, because I had spent the money and the time and was so disrespected, I was very frustrated. And I thought, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go next? So like I said, I kind of stumbled into freelancing when I came back. And I was really happy that I did because it ended up paying off. I got more experience. I taught myself more skills and I started my degree. So it all kind of worked out, (laughs) even though at the time, at least when I first came back, I didn't see that happening, but it did, thankfully. And it kind of gave me a new focus. So once I had that focus, instead of going back to Asia, that time was my opportunity to look elsewhere. (laughs) So that was kind of what helped me kind of refocus in a different part of the world. And I thought, you know what, why limit myself to just one continent? I can go somewhere else. So I did. And of course, it took a lot of time with Germany, because again, they're a very bureaucratic country, they're kind of notorious for that. (laughs) But once I had my sights set on it, that was pretty much my commitment at that point. And it was different too, because I have some ties to Germany, like familial ties. Okay. So moving there, I connected with it in a way that I couldn't possibly have in Vietnam or China. So it was different in that respect too. So even with the frustrating bureaucratic side of things or, you know, things being very time consuming, ultimately when that was all finished, it ended up being, you know, one of the best experiences of mine, despite how short it was because of the pandemic that ultimately hit. Right. When did you move there and when did you end up coming back to Germany? So I moved to Germany in the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. And then I was there up until March of this year when everything happened. And at the time, Germany was one of the worst hit countries for the virus. So at that point, I really didn't know what was going to happen. So I tried to book flights to get back home. And three of them got canceled on me. Oh, wow. So I was very scared. And it was the third flight that thankfully just rerouted my itinerary. So Mm -hmm. instead of going the way I had booked originally, which I think was just from Germany to Iceland and then Iceland to Canada, they sent me on this kind of odd (laughs) path, Mm -hmm. but I did get back home. So at least that happened. It was a very terrifying time because I really thought maybe I was going to be stuck there. And because I was a freelancer and I lost all my work, like Uh, 95% of it in one fell swoop. Like I went Mm -hmm. from full workloads every week with the same clients pretty much to suddenly we're not having face-to-face trainings anymore. 
all the e-learning projects have been suspended temporarily. Mm. Great. What do I do? (laughs) So, you know, of course I'm not the only one. There were plenty of people trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? And, you know, I'm not from the United States, so I didn't have to worry about potentially going back to a country where the cases were so high. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Right. So there was a lot of that, that I was really concerned about, but thankfully I did make it back home and just kind of had to adapt when I came back again. So this time, to be honest, I'm not looking to be an expat again in the near future, Hmm. but I'll see what happens. You know, I'm just in my thirties now and I'd like to see where things go, but I'm actually considering moving to another part of Canada. So it's not quite the same as being an expat, of course, but different provinces have very different cultures. So there will still be a little bit of culture shock, just nowhere near what I experienced (laughs) in other places. Yeah. (laughs) So of course this happened in a way that you couldn't have expected. And, you know, it was disappointing, I'm sure for you in many respects as well. But I'm curious if having those experiences in Vietnam and in China and Germany has made it so that you feel more assured or comfortable or confident, indeed, trying to to stay in Canada and maybe trying a different province. Because I think, at least for me, I can speak for myself in that I'm very happy to be abroad and I want to try to keep doing that. But making the constant move from company to company, from country to country, from continent to continent gets kind of well, a little old and tiring after a while. And so I'm kind of hoping to stay put for some time myself, although you never know what the future holds. And I'm curious if that was something that has come into your thought process as well, or what makes you feel like the next step for you is not to be abroad again, but rather to explore more of your home country. Yeah. So at the time of recording this, like if you had asked me maybe a few months ago, I might've had a different answer Mm. because when I came back, from Germany. My professional goal was to work solely in e-learning and instructional design. So Mm. that was kind of where I positioned myself online and restructured my whole website. Like I did so much in the first month that I came back because I had to act fast. Right. Right. So I did all of that and thankfully it really paid off. So I got back on LinkedIn, I optimized it. And now it's crazy the amount of people who have reached out to me either for professional advice for them or to even potentially work with them. And yeah, so I was, and I'm still am self-employed. So I have a sole proprietorship that I operate Mm -hmm. that's solely like e-learning and instructional design consulting or actually being a part of the projects, which is usually what I do. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing that for quite some time and I still do it on the side, but I just accepted a job with Grant Thornton to be a learning experience designer at LXD, which is pretty much like a dream job and a dream company. And they're based here in Canada. So as long as I'm still based in the country, I can still work for them. But if I decided, oh, maybe I want to go work in Ecuador or something, I can't do that because Mm. you still have to be in Canada in order to still work for them. So you can be remote, you can go to another province, but you can't leave the country. If I was still just self-employed, maybe I would have considered going and being a digital nomad, which I did think about doing. But I also felt kind of emotionally that I was really happy to be back home around, you know, my parents and my closest friends and just the people that really, you know, maybe it's cheesy to say, but the people that really make me happy and proud to be who I am. Because sometimes when you're in certain cultures, sometimes you feel like you can't do that fully. Right. 
And so it's nice to just kind of have that again and be as Canadian as I want to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's Torontonian to a certain extent. And it's just, it's a nice feeling when you come back after all of those things. But now I don't feel that, that restlessness, like, oh, I need to experience this because I never have before. I feel like I got a really good feel of it, but that's not to say that the future couldn't have something in store for me. <laughs> yeah. Right? We never know if we never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's where I'm at. So like professionally, emotionally, all the cards are kind of lined up for me to just stay here at least for the next couple of years. Amazing. And who knows what will happen down the line. And congrats on the new job, by the way. That's oh, thank great. You. <laughs> <laughs> so just to get, I guess, some key takeaways or some final thoughts for you, for, for our audience. What advice do you have for people that are interested in living abroad as you've done for the last quite few years now, and maybe in particular in Vietnam or China? I know we've talked about Germany in this podcast a few times, but if you have any other thoughts on maybe those countries or just the topic in general, it'd be great to hear anything that you have to say in parting. Okay. So I think I alluded to this a bit earlier, but again, I think really researching visas and legalities is mm -hmm. so, so, so important. Even in countries where the laws might be a little more lax or they don't seem as enforced, just know what they are anyway. You know, uh, start joining expat groups for the country or even city, which is even better, uh, that you're thinking of maybe going to and just talk to people. You know, I don't want to say for everybody or all places, but generally you can find at least a few people in these groups that are open to talking with you. Usually because if they made the move and they haven't left, it's because they want to stay put. It's because they love where they're at. So typically people like that, I find will want to talk with you and help you out. So I think that's really valuable too, because they have that on the ground knowledge. So that's the first thing I would suggest. The other thing is, you know, read blogs, find YouTube videos. Like there are so many valuable resources online alone that mm -hmm. you probably would never find on a government website or anything like that. So I would definitely explore as much as you can. And if you, I mean, it's tough right now, again, because of the circumstance that everybody's in, but if you do have a chance to visit, that's great. But to be honest, I've never done that. Every country I've lived in, I never visited <laughs> before I went. <laughs> so I did it the crazy way, but every time it worked out in some respect or another. So if you can visit, great. But if you don't, just kind of try to mentally prepare yourself for things that may come up that you don't expect. Or just be cognizant of the fact that you can only do so much research in advance. There are yeah. certain things you're only going to learn once you're there. So as long as you kind of brace yourself for that, I think you'll have a much better time and a much better experience. Yes, fantastic advice indeed. I know you have a podcast called The Expat Experience and also a new yeah. online course out about moving abroad. So I'd love to hear a little bit about these projects and why you started them, how they've evolved over the last months and years. And of course, how the listeners can find them. Absolutely. So the Expat Experience podcast, you can find pretty much anywhere where podcasts are a thing. Most people tend to listen to it through Apple or Spotify. Those mm -hmm. are, at least that's what my analytics tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's where you can find the podcast. I don't have a whole lot of social media connected to it, just a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. As for the course, that just got launched less than a month ago. 
So I'm still building up a student base for that. But essentially what it is, it's the expat masterclass. So the idea is that regardless of which country you're from and which one you want to go to, the modules will cover everything that you need to consider. So everything from your inner why and putting your reasons into context to researching visas, to planning your finances and finding work, all of those things are covered. And all of the key strategies that I used for every country up to this point that has led me to a good place, I've integrated into the course. So if you're interested in enrolling for that, it's available on Udemy. So you can search the Expat Masterclass and you'll find me, uh, Amy Jasnicki, as the instructor. So you can go there and join if you want to. As for why I started these projects, the podcast I started while I was in Germany. So I wanted to highlight the experiences of people in different continents, different countries, different professions, even different cities in the same country or different professions in the same country. I myself am just so fascinated by other people's stories and how wildly different they can be from person to person. And I wanted to showcase that. And I'm sure you've probably had this too, being mm-hmm. someone who's you know, entire thing is expat life. You probably get a lot of people asking you, you know, well, I really want to do this, but how, like, mm-hmm. where do I even start? Where do I begin? So I wanted right. to kind of inspire people through that by showing them that there isn't just a one singular path to pursue that. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And you can be very innovative in your approach, very creative in terms of how you pursue this life. So I wanted to kind of showcase the stories of people who have managed to do that. As for the course, it was kind of inspired by a similar thing, except it would be a lot more structured. So the podcast is more for open-ended stories and experiences that we talk about in a very conversational way, whereas the course is a lot more structured and also has a Facebook community that you can join so that everybody can share their ideas and you know exchange their thoughts sure. and even share advice if they have been expats themselves. And if you're brand new to it, then you get direct benefit of interacting with people who have already done it or are still doing it now. So more or less, that's where the inspiration for those projects came from. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to put links to all of that in the show notes. So definitely everyone who's listening, check it out if you're interested in the Expat Experience podcast or in the Expat Masterclass online course for how to move abroad. Is there anywhere else that our listeners can find out about you and what you're doing? Okay. Yeah, I guess so. Funny enough, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I know is not the most exciting place to everybody. But like I said, I'm just in a career that I absolutely love. So I love connecting with people, not just in instructional design, but even people who maybe want to be teachers or online trainers or anything like that. If they want some professional advice, or if they just want to ask me, about some of my previous experiences, whether that's abroad or not, you can find me on LinkedIn under my full name, which I guess you can include in the description because my last yes. name is a bit of a nightmare, uh, okay. <laughs> which is Amy Jasnicki. I'm the only one, so it'll be very easy to find me. I guess you could follow me on Instagram too. You can find me under the Traveling LXD, which is short for Learning Experience Designer. Yeah, I guess those are really the only other platforms, I guess, that they could connect with me on. Okay, perfect. All those links will be in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time today, Amy. Thank you for sharing your story. It's been inspiring for me and I'm sure the listeners as well and hope to keep up with you and talk soon. Awesome. Thank you, David. Thanks to Amy for sharing her story with us. 
You can find the full transcript for this episode at expatempire.com. Music on this episode was produced by Eli Hermit. Please check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expatempire. If you know anyone who might enjoy this podcast, please tell them about it so that we can continue growing the global expat empire community. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for the newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. We're currently offering a free 30-minute consulting call to discuss your moving plans and how Expat Empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.